Pelotero Pickle episode 138. This was a really fun episode. We're talking George Kirby's post-game comments, Bill James and developing skills, and then good hitters slowing down, bad hitters speeding up. Check it out. Pelotero Pickle episode 138. My name is Bobby Tewksbury. Joining me as always is Chris Colabello. Before we get started, a reminder to send us your questions, topics, concerns to pickle at pelotero.com or find us on social media at Pelotero app, at Pelotero Pickle, at Tewksbury, at CC20Rake. If you listen to the podcast, you probably follow us. So just hit us up. Uh, Chris, how are you doing today? Hi, Bob. I'm, uh, I don't, okay. I always say concerns in there. I don't know if, if I want people to send their concerns. Yeah. And just, you say, you also say, as always, joining me, Chris Caldwell, which is only true when it's true. It's more often than not. Yeah, it's like but 90. But there have been. Yeah, I, there so have I'll, been so I'll modify it and say, as true 94.3% of the time, joining me is Chris Caldwell. <laughs> nice modification. I think you've been on more shows than I have. It's close. I've had to miss a couple. Probably. We've had to miss a couple. So but fair. out of 137 episodes, I think we're both over 130. Yeah, I agree with we're that. We're doing good. That's true. We're doing I good. don't agree. It's true. I, it's funny. When people say I agree with that to a factual statement, I think it's weird. It's kind of like unnecessary. Like it's true, so yeah. you don't need to agree. Yeah. yeah. It's like when people sense. say, oh, you're right. And I say, well, that's why I said it out loud. Yeah, what's the alternative there? Like just spewing nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually really yeah. funny to say that. It's really funny. I like it. Uh, I just want to make a quick side note because uh, producer Patrick's in Chicago and I'm a big pizza guy. He's a big pizza guy. Just a side note that the the pizza fest that happened turned into a disaster apparently. Everybody's complaining about it. So I, we, we talked about you not attending. So good call on that. Initially, I was upset that you weren't going, but it looks like that was a good call. So I just wanted to get that out there pre-show. I can't so, believe something in Chicago went wrong. Is that me? Huge eye. Pat, so Chris is not on video today. Patrick just had a huge eye roll to that. Patrick hasn't been in Chicago long enough to really feel that, but we'll, I'll give it to him. I'll give it to him. All right, let's jump into the topics. Uh, first, The first one here is... I would say fairly controversial. So the situation was George Kirby of the Mariners pitched into the seventh inning. Pitch count was 90 plus. I don't know what the final final number is, like 104 or something like that. The issue was post-game, uh, he was interviewed and he made comments to the effect of, I wish I wasn't out there. Like effectively I was done. I shouldn't have been out there. didn't want to be out there. And, the 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 baseball world reacted strongly on uh on twitter uh, a lot of former major league pitchers sounding off just really laying into this kid uh i had a comment i'll i'll refer to it after but the questions here are is this just a lack of self-awareness is it healthy self-awareness lack of accountability um and then how do you balance like there's this whole this whole concept of competitiveness and you want the pitcher to want the ball 
But at some point, the pitcher knows he doesn't have it. And then there's the whole like Mike Messina yelling at Joe Torre gift that everybody keeps referencing. So, Chris, I want to hear your thoughts on this before I share mine. Uh, as a as a former player, as somebody who was on the in the in the arena, like you guys are the modern day gladiators. What would you What would you feel if this was your teammate and you were like catching this on Twitter after the fact? I didn't love it. Um, look, I think frankly you're in a in a pennant race, right? It's meaningful games in in September. And that's everything that an athlete can wish for, hope for, dream about when you get to this time of year in baseball specifically. The the hard part is, and I think you and I will both agree on this, is doing it after the fact is, is kind of garbage, right? I think that's why, more so than anything else, why people are up in arms. Um, look, there, there are times when you have it and when you don't. And when, you know, philosophically, you sit there and you want to say, like, I want a teammate who wants the ball in that situation, especially when he's our best gun, right? Independent of that, and, and we can get into that part later, a baseball team, you're really like a family when it comes down to it, right? You spend more time with your teammates than you do with your wife and kids and so on and so forth and yada, yada, yada. And the whole element of it is, like to create really great culture, you need to be in an environment where nobody shows each other up. And really what he did is he showed the manager up publicly. Like if you want to have a conversation internally about it, there's no problem with that. Um, what it comes down to is, and Brady talked about this and Jeter talked about it in their documentaries. Like the media and the fans have, entirely too much exposure to what's going on in the clubhouse within a team. And I think people think that they, A, have a right to that, all that information, and B, players have become accustomed to sharing everything now. So it's kind of like this double-edged sword where, you know, that, that he was asked about it, and you appreciate the fact that he was honest and things like that. But at the same time, why, why didn't he just say it? before he went out there like why didn't he because let's let's call it space paid if he throws up a clean inning is he going to have the same comment is he gonna, you know you're emotional after the moment you know there have been plenty of situations where athletes have done emotional things in the heat of battle or right after the heat of battle and and i just didn't i, I think more than anything you just don't appreciate the fact that it came out later right instead of in real time so do you do you think I, I didn't expect you to say um, that he was showing up to manager. Do you know if there was a conversation in the dugout? Because um, I didn't. That was a you, you threw me out. That was a little curveball there. So you felt like yeah. I, I mean, I don't. I don't specifically do think was, know. Do you think the like? Do you think he thought the manager should have known he was done? Well, I think specifically, right as a pitcher, at some point there's an interaction, there's an engagement, right? And, and as a, just, if he felt like he was out of gas, he, you know, he's obviously going to interact with the pitching coach. Like I can guarantee there was some form of interaction, whether it was yeah, usually, usually hey, you good for one more. Yeah. You know, and, and so somebody engaged with him, like that's the, 
the reality of the situation, right? Um, and he just, I don't, I just don't like the way it all happened. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, usually when a starting pitcher is getting up there in pitch count, there's, he comes off the mound, the manager, the pitching coach, somebody's going to slide up next to him and say, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Or you just think the guy's just completely locked in. You leave him alone. There's some people like that. Like, uh, is it Scherzer? Scherzer doesn't like people talking to him, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that type of pitch, Scherzer, you're telling him he's out and he's going to like snarl at you and he's in full like pit bull mode and he's going to just be mean in real time and then afterwards chill out a little bit. This is like the exact opposite of that where to me, the biggest mistake was him. If he truly felt that he was done, if he felt like he had given his all and his teammates and his coaches and everybody can look at that self-assessment and say, yep, good job. Let's get somebody else in here. If that's what the case was, then you say that up front. You don't go back on the mound. If he's mentally checked out, if he's emotionally not engaged, if that's the reality of it, then take yourself out of the game. I don't think that's like truly something to be shameful. If you've given it your all and everybody knows you've given it your all, he pitched really well. He six strong. Um, if he, I think a lot of the old school mindset is, you know, pitch counts don't matter. I didn't watch the game. I don't know what the innings were like. I don't know if it was stressful pitching, non-stressful pitching. Uh, I, I just, maybe he's got something going on in his personal life that we don't know about that. He's just emotionally taxed. Like we just, these are things that we don't know about that are so easy to not consider when you're just reading Twitter or you're, you're catching a soundbite. You have no idea what this guy's going through from a, like off the field standpoint. It's a sheer human standpoint, right? Yeah. He might've just been completely tapped out and done. If that's the case, you got to speak up. You just got to tell your manager, tell the pitching coach, say, I'm done guys. I gave it my all. This is all I've got today. That's okay. But you can't take the ball as a teammate. And I don't care what level of play this is like major leagues down to any level. If you don't have conviction out there, I guess maybe not down to like T ball, but you know, like any level of serious baseball where you're like the, the implication is you're trying to win. You can't take the ball. You can't put yourself in situations when you're not committed and you're not giving it your best effort, which reading or yeah. listening to what he was talking about. It was like, well, I was done anyway. I wish I wasn't out there. It's like, dude, you got out of your seat and walked up on the mound. So that's on you at that point. That's how I felt. About yeah. It. That, and that, and that, I think that's the whole point, right? Is like when it comes down to it again, from a, from a sheer, what do I want my teammates to be like? You know, you, you, you understand, like, it's not like he's, first year guy who's trying to establish himself he's he's really he's their best pitcher he's their best starter very 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 so yeah and you know command wizard with stuff so again you just hope that 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 player and, and this is where it comes down to the philosophical side for me is i think and again i'm not yelling at the clouds here i'm just stating what i think is fact and it could be an opinion, uh, whatever you choose to perceive it as. It's the reality is that, like we've we've come up in a generation now, or come up on a generation 
that has expectations, right? That has expectations of, you know, a hundred pitches, six innings, whatever it is. The idea of like the CG is gone. It's, it's very few and far between. And I, I think, you know, most kids are developed in a way that they don't learn how to have that bulldog mentality and so on and so forth. So if you want to get into that side of it, and that's where probably a lot of the older pitchers are, are saying like, look, I, I wish he had done this or I'm mad at him because of that. And it's partially not his fault, right? In some capacity it is, but it's, it's more just, I think generationally we're, we're, we're raising guys to believe that, you know, they're only supposed to go a certain amount and, and do certain things and that's their threshold. And, and I think what that causes is a lot of limitation, right? It causes limitation. It's called self, it, it puts self-imposed limits in, it, you know, volume, workload management, management, uh, things like that. They're all things that just ultimately, they, they handcuff you, right? Like they, they put you in a position where you have to be, are you just more conscious of potential injury risk and things like that? And, and again, if you, if you really look at a sign of the times, right? Like guys are pitching for hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, realistically, do you blame a guy if he, if he wants to, you know, five and dive every game and can go get himself 20 to 30 million per? Like, I, I don't, you know, I, I, that's where you have to, you have to draw the line between, what's more important to you, your, your career or today. Right. And I think that's, that's a hard one it's for, for an athlete. And it, it seems like based on his answers, he's decided his career is more important. And I think that's just a difference in generations. It's a difference in philosophies. I think about the uh, whoop strap with this and the whole workload management thing. And I think, the whoop, whoop is interesting because it's effectively telling you, like, are you good today? And old school mentality is like, who cares if you're good or not today? You got to go strap up and you got to go play, period, and do what you got to do to compete and help the team win. Where kids that have grown up with readiness tests and whoop straps telling them if they're fully recovered – like, dude, who cares? Like, I, as a teammate, I don't care if you're fully recovered. I don't care if you got a good night's sleep. I care that you're going to show up and play when it matters because that's the thing that matters. If you're going to be on the field, if you're going to be putting the uniform on. So, on one hand, it's like, oh, my whoop says I'm really recovered today. So, th does that mean you're going to play well? Does that mean you're going to get good results? Is there like a false sense of security with that? And then also, if you're not recovered, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to perform well today which is completely ridiculous because I, I'm <laughs> looking back on my career. I almost feel like I played better when I wasn't feeling good because I focused a little bit more. And when I felt great, I got a little comfortable and kind of relaxed a little bit when I shouldn't have. Um, so it's just a, it's an interesting mindset and yeah, kids have grown up with pitch counts. And when you look at the age of players that are, you know, <laughs> The, the age of the player, the, the mindset of the player that's showing up in the big leagues now, is is this the first, like, true wave of, like, showcase players? Is this, like, 
the kids that really grew up in that atmosphere. Is that fair to say? Like the the current iteration of yeah, I mean, I, the the just max out yeah. max out your numbers, and if your numbers are good, then you're good. That kind of mentality. That's what I see I a think, lot. I think that type of. I think you made a great things. you made a great point. You made a great point with the with the whoop strap thing, right? Like you're inherently you're you're building in a, a stop. You're building in a point, a threshold. You're building in. A time where you're, and this is like, it's the power of the brain, right? Like it's, 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 and it, again, it, you see it a lot. It's, it's, this is just one example, and it's really a microcosm of where we are. It's not like my dad used to tell me stories about 147 pitch complete games and things like that. Like, and it goes back to the Grady Little, Pedro Martinez thing against the Yankees. And, and not to say Pedro wasn't a bulldog or anything like that, but, it, you know, I think there's this this unspoken thing that happens at the professional level where you, you expect the manager to have enough feel, and, and like, by all accounts and for all intents and purposes, you know, Scott Service is a pretty good manager. Uh, it's just, you sit there and you go, you know, why, like, why was that his attitude, right? Is it frustration? Is it, you know, built in? And like, again, building in a threshold for yourself, it's just, you're, you're creating a limitation. It's the, it's the equivalent of saying like, well, I, I want to hit 10, 15, 20 homers this year. Well, you're putting a cap on it, dude. Like, and I'm not saying like, it's always true because anytime we're trying to predict the future, we're just guessing when it comes down to it, right? Whether it's injury prevention or, you know, statistical creation we're just guessing and and that's you know we we talk about we talk about these hypotheses as if they're factual statements so you know look back to the when the kid from johns hopkins in the playoffs in division three threw x amount of pitches and you know people want to talk about the irresponsibility of the coaches and so on and so forth and you go like what are we talking about guys you don't get that many opportunities to be great in your life. And when you're just, you're I also just, like I know forcing that, your opinion of what matters on somebody else. Which is weird right. to do. I, had a, I think I that's had a, why this whole situation, when it, go ahead. when it comes down to it, this whole situation is more than anything. You just, you wish the kid had handled it better in the sense that like, you wish he hadn't come out in front of the media, like, or at least it should have been addressed. Like, you want the manager to be the one to make that comment. You want the manager to say, this is on me. I shouldn't run him out there. Right. Like after a, a one-on-one conversation in the office, like th- there's no scenario in which I would ever blame the manager as a player for putting me out there or blame the staff or like at the end of the day, like I'm the one that has to make the decision to go out there. Like I chose to play with a partially torn nerve in my, in my thumb. Now, that being said, I didn't know I had a partially torn nerve, but it wasn't the manager's fault for playing me when I made myself available, right? It's not certainly not his. So. Yeah. Yep. And it, that's there's always that line there where if you're banged up, like if you're if you're really just banged up and you're you're not sure if you can play at your best ability, you know, I think there was a big thing about uh, Chas McCormick and Dusty Baker. Did you see any of that? 
I did not. So it was uh, it was kind of a big deal because Chaz has been playing very well and hasn't doesn't have the playing time that other people have. And he made some sort of comment. Dusty Baker was like, "Oh, he's not a big boy yet." And everybody's like, "What are you talking about, big boy? Like this guy is one of the most productive players in the ro- in the lineup, and he's not." another playing time and then he came back dusty baker came back the next day and was like he's not altuve he's not tucker he's not alvarez he's like he's not that guy yet but also he was he missed 20 games because of an injury and basically he's gotten one day off a week for the last whatever stretch he's like why don't you worry about like worry about writing better and i'll worry about managing my guys basically was what he what he said um so it was just uh, another one of those, another one of those type of mindset type deals with uh, just people maybe not understanding the situation or not trying to trying to blame the wrong person or trying to assign things to people in a way that maybe not be best. I guess you know what I'm saying. Like, well, again, it's it's. I think it's just a lot of different opinions, right? When it comes down to it. And, and the McCormick thing, if you use that as an example, yeah, like Chaz is not, he's not super established as a major league player. Like kudos to him. He's having a really good year. Um, he's trending toward being that bona fide guy. Like, like if you think about it, every team has three or four guys, which are the centerpieces, right? Who are the ones that, you know, they get the, they get the treatment they want or that's how it's been historically anyway. Right. Like they get the treatment. Like I play with Joe Maurer and Justin Morneau and you know, it'd be hitting 230, 250, 270. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like they're, they're the ones that dictate, you know, their off days. They're the ones that dictate like they, they have the right to be asked the question like, Hey, can you go today? Right. As opposed to, you know, everybody else is just, kind of secondary piece. It's like you're, you're a supplement to the team and, and you're, you're again, as a player initially, you know, whether you're Chaz or <laughs> I had to experience it in Toronto, right? I was hitting 340 and I found myself on the bench one out of every three games. And I, I was frustrated because I knew I could contribute and be effective against regardless of the matchup. And, you know, you sit there and you tell yourself in your brain, you believe that, you would dominate whatever guys out there, but maybe something like sometimes it's probably good for you. And it just depends on your perspective. Like you have to have better perspective at it than you do anything else as a player, right? You have to just kind of figure out how to contribute to the team winning. And that was a lot of what I had to convince myself of in 2015. It's like, look, you don't want to put me in there today. Like shame on you. Right. It's not, you know, not shame. But on you me can't go, you can't go stand in front of the press and say, man, I should be in the lineup. <laughs> right, and I, that like, conversation I, happens in the manager's I'll, office, which is a completely fair conversation to have if that's the way you feel. But that's part of being a more mature player is is standing up for yourself, and sometimes it's it's having the guts to do it. Of it, it can it's it can be incredibly scary to walk into somebody into the manager's office and tell them how you feel. But yeah. more often than not, the guy is going to have a bunch of stuff that maybe he didn't communicate to you or the for the, you know, if it's a man or a woman, I said my, the guy, but, um, 
just baseball or softball or any sport for that matter. Like if you're the player walking up to the coach, speaking human to human, like this is how I feel. I would like some insight into how you think about the situation and, and why you're making the, the decisions you're making so that I can make an impact on my, how I'm going to go about my business to, to help the team. A lot of the time the manager's thinking about 11,000 things and needs to get prompt to discuss things with you in further detail. That's just well, and I th- the reality of the situation. Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to, right? Is So like, there's a couple different things and I don't think I've ever necessarily shared this publicly, right? Um, I, th- there were times in 2015 when I was deeply frustrated because I, I came up there and I, I ran off the first 41 games in a row, right? Like I played 41 in a row. And there was a point in time where DeMarlo Hale walked up to me. We were in Houston, I'll never forget this. And this is actually what, uh, when I created my handshake with DeMarlo. And DeMarlo is one of my favorite people. Um, and I love Gibby too, don't get me wrong. Like, But uh, Very DeMarlo was putting a lineup Gibby. card up. We got to get yeah. Gibby on the podcast. He's, DeMarlo, he's getting after it. DeMarlo put up the lineup card in Houston. I was walking by and he goes, he goes, did you sign up for this? And I go, I go, what do you got? And uh, he goes, is this, did you, is this what you signed up for? And I said, what do you got? Am I catching today? I go, I'm good. Like, you know, joking around, right? Like, you need me to catch? I'm in. Whatever. Um, and and he goes, and he just kind of nodded at me and, you know, gave me his approval, right? Like, he kind of recognized I'm, I'm an old soul and that I was just a guy that wanted to be out there every day. And I said, uh, I said, D, I said, you could put 162 of those things up and put my name on it every day, and I'm never going to say boo. And he just kind of nodded. And I said, uh, that, that afternoon I went in the dugout and I said, do something to help us win. I patted him on the, on the shoulder. So that became our handshake, uh, before every game. So we'd say it to each other, do something to help us win. And, uh, it's funny because like later on after the 41 in a row, I, I stopped being an everyday guy. And, uh, it was much easier to swallow because like now anytime you pinch hit when you're hitting 330, you feel better about yourself. You go over one, but, uh, I would walk by Gibby's office and there were times where he would ask me how I was doing, but there, I would just walk by Gibby's office after the lineup card would go up and I wasn't playing. And I'd, I'd just go by and say, well, must not be trying today. And, uh, he, and I just walk by the weight room and he'd go, like, must not be trying to win. And, and, and must not, must, must not be trying to win today. You know? Um, and, and he would just kind of chuckle and laugh at it. And then there were times where he'd call me in and, and see how I was doing. I'd say, Gibby, can you let me play nine innings one time? Like, I'm a really good first baseman, and I don't know why. And then it was the first time in my brain I actually really started to rationalize things from a coach's perspective. And he's like, look, I, he's like, yeah, you know, sometimes I, I, want, you know, I want Smokey to feel like he's part of this, blah, 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 and like he's important. And, you know, for whatever the rationale behind it is, right? Uh, and then – alternatively at the end of the season, you know, we we're getting into the playoffs and after game one of the division series, the only, the only game I didn't start in the playoffs. And uh, I was walking down the street and fans saw me and they go, Colabello, why weren't you in there today? And I, I just looked at him. I said, above my pay grade guys, I don't write the lineup card, you know, like I, it's, my job. It's, yep. that's not for me to decide. It's not for me to decide. Um, and if you just the- stay the course and, do the right thing. It'll, it'll work itself out. You know, the phrase you said earlier, um, do something to help us win today. Was that what it was? Yep. 
that we should put that on a t-shirt that's amazing like think about that think about that as a if you're a player on the bench think about that if you're a coach think about like if you basically if you're in the dugout if you're in the dugout if you're in uniform that's your job is to do something to help us win today and that can be you know some guy on the bench picking up signs it can be creating confidence uplifting spirits like there's so many things you can do to help the team win getting your inf- getting getting uh the right fielder warmed up like little things it just it matters and like that it's, it's such a powerful phrase to consider when like all right the names your name your name's not on the lineup which means you're not on the field but that doesn't mean you can't contribute correct and and i think it's it's a tough yeah. pill to swallow at times right it's a tough pill it, like and ironically enough guess who that came from came from rich getman um he always used to say that to me, he, and, and he talked to me a lot about, you know, dealing with the stresses and pressures. And ironically, I was I was I was talking to Sal Freilich the other day. I was texting with him, um, you know, friend of the program, Sal Freilich. Uh, and you know, Sal's he Sal had a little Freilich. skid after his. Yeah, he, he, Sal Sal's amazing at this, right? Sal, you know, when he starts to scuffle, like it's like right where I need him to be. Like, cause he's a savage and, but I, one of the things that I, I, I alluded to with him and it's the same thing I said to Bo last year before the stretch run in September was like, look guys, it, it's very easy to get caught up in our own stuff. And when we do, and, and this is coach prime, uh, you better believe in something bigger than yourself because it's easy to quit on you. And so when you're playing baseball, especially when you're struggling, especially when you're struggling personally, you're 0 for 12, 0 for 14. Like making it about the guy next to you relieves so much of that stress and pressure, right? And so from both a philosophical standpoint of like, what are we actually trying to do? And an actual like implement a strategy that will help me navigate the, the crap that I'm dealing with. Like, make it about the guy next to you. And this is what I said to Sal. I was like, you guys have a chance to do something really cool, right? You're about to get in the tournament. Like, like and once you're in the tournament, like, nothing else matters other than win. And nobody's going to remember whether you hit 230, 270, 320. They're going to remember that team, and they're going to remember, like, if you were capable of contributing to a winning baseball team, right? And it's a beautiful thing because it relieves a lot of the stress and then it ultimately allows you to perform better, which is what you want in the first place. So yeah, just keep trying to do something to help us win. Powerful man. It's a, it's a really simple, really crazy simple concept that just, it's interesting. And you can even, it just made me think about, uh, Italy versus Dominican in the in the 2013 WBC, like the fans did something to help the team win that day. Like that, I I think uh, parents are are too often mixing it up with like trying to influence youth baseball games, but I get it. I get like the desire to want to help things win. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's it's such a I, I'm entranced by that comment that statement i love it absolutely love it. <laughs> it's just so clean and powerful because it makes you it, it forces perspective 
and, and makes you kind of feel and, what matters. And that's what most of us need. Like that statement was as much for me as it was for him on any given day. You know, it was as much to remind me like, Hey, be where you are. Think about what's important and ultimately figure out how to contribute. And I'm telling you, Bobby, I promise you, as an individual, like we all want to thrive, right? We all want to succeed individually. We all want to perform at a high level. We all want to be the guy. And the more you make it about the team, the easier it is to be that. Because just the stresses and rigors of, of failure will, ro- will like be far more likely to roll off your shoulder than anything else. Love it. Good stuff. A lot of, a lot of clippable moments in there, which is good. All right, let's move on. There was a, uh, a post by Bill James, the legendary Bill James and producer Patrick pushed it to us multiple times to encourage us to engage with it. So we did. So I'm going to read the first two tweets cause it was a long thread. Um, I'll just read it. Uh, I should explain this in a book, but a winning baseball team needs hundreds of different skills. When there's rapid improvement in one skill, such as fastball velocity, it is overwhelmingly likely that it comes not as a pure gain, but as an offset against other skills, such as secondary pitches or depth of repertoire. Some of the offsets are actually measurable if you look. For example, one reason there are more hard throwers in that is that teams use sorry, is that teams used to have three-man bullpens, whereas now it is about eight, which enables a throw-as-hard-as-you-can approach. So this uh, this plays well into the uh, – we're, we're in like a an ongoing battle with driveline about bat speed, which is hilarious because we think bat speed's important and they think bat speed's important. But this really cuts to the core of what our point is. And it also reveals their beliefs about how they're going about their business, which is fine. Like we don't have to agree. Um, the subtweets are funny to me. Um, I'm, I'm going to guess they're going to continue. My only beef was the driveline youth Academy talked about like not being negative online. And then they get people subtweeting people, which is, I almost commented on, but I, I chose not to. So now I'm just talking about it here instead. But, our point and this i'm going to i'm going to zoom out ready for this this was uh some of my 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 weekend insight here i think pelotero is different from driveline cuz people ask us this what what's different about us than other companies i guess and driveline's one that people will point to driveline is like heavy 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 statistical model probability expected results you know, they can, they have a, a thing called the money barrel script that tells you if you increase your bat speed this much, this is your expected gain of war. You and I hear something like that and we go, that's ridiculous. And they go, well, we have proof that these players did it. Mookie Betts did this, Lar, whatever the, the guy in the Cardinals, I forget his name, um, Newbar did it. And then, you know, Arenado did it. And it's like, great. Our point is that you can't make, you can't predict human behavior. Human behavior is non-predictable. And even if you have every statistical model in the world, it's going to come down to the moment. And yes, you can put yourself in better positions to be successful. That's not the argument. The argument is no matter what model you create, no matter what 
no matter what you do from a statistical standpoint, it's still going to come down to the person with the ball in their hand and the person with the bat in their hand. And maybe the umpire because the umpire currently has discretion. So when you look at this comment from uh, Bill James, he's talking about, yeah, yeah. If you, if you work really hard at improving one thing, something else, it's, it's a training economy thing. You only have so much time. You only have so much mental resource. You only have so much effort and focus. So when you, when you, when you stack the deck on one side, the other side becomes diminished. It has to, there's only, you only have a hundred percent. So if you start divvying up that hundred percent in different ways, other things will start to lack. Now I will say that if you, in an ideal world, you're, you're, you're pouring effort into other things that get dragged up. So that's when we talk about things that never change. If you improve your timing, it's going to give you a better chance across the board. If you get ready on time, that allows all other skills to perform better. Like improving bat speed is great, but I'm going to make a very, very strong argument that you just, you will never move me off of this position that there's a huge difference between a really good hitter, AKA Mookie Betts, Nolan Arenado guys that when they're making adjustments, when they're working on bat speed, they are doing it differently than a bat hitter. The things that they focus on, the, the fine-tuning that they are doing compared to a, a non-good hitter, compared to a hitter that doesn't have like all those micro-adjustments and all that fine-tuning. Like one guy is basically like uh, an empty mind taking hacks and one guy is doing like super intense, focused micro-moves, micro-adjustments, like truly becoming a better hitter. So if you have one type of person, one t- one like archetyped, one type of hitter who's got all these like innate abilities to focus and, and adjust and make all these fine-tuned adjustments, and then you have the other hitter who doesn't have any of those capabilities, like, yeah, they're going to swing faster, but they're not becoming a better hitter. You're not addressing the things that matter the most. That's our argument, I think. Is that fair? For sure. Yeah, at, well, if you look at most statistical models, they're very linear, Bobby, right? Like, they're they're just basically if-then statements, right? Like, and I think that's, and I think there's a place for the if-then statement with a bunch of context wrapped around it, right? Like, you have to have the context tied around it to say, okay, if this, then that, but if this, then that, and also, but if this, then that. And, and that's the challenge with, I think, society at large, right? We, we have these, like, very surface-level views of things that seem to make sense on the surface, and we don't really consider the other things. And look, I, you know, I could sit here and say to you, like, you know, in the past we've talked about, uh, like, Joey Gallo's spray chart and the shift and the reasons why and these are these are the things that i'm trying to mentally do at all times when it, it comes down to moments right it comes down to this moment or that moment or that moment and ultimately that's going to dictate and define how you know a player performs in real time so i i really liked the fact that you know bill james online said what he said because you know you're looking at really the godfather of statistical analysis and analytical growth within the game of baseball and so on and so forth. And 
realistically, there's always, you know, anytime there's a gain, there's usually a loss unless you pull up from the floor. You know, we talk about floor and ceiling all the time. And if you just try to push the ceiling up, you have a chance that the floor goes down. Um, if you try to elevate from the floor, and I, I think that's where we have to do a better job in defining hitting and, and data collection analysis and hitting is we have to be ele- we have to be lifting the floor. What are the floor data points? What are what are the concepts on on the floor? So, like. And I think this is why hitting development is so hard is because does square the ball up matter more than hit the ball hard? Does hit the ball, like, does be on time matter more than swing fast? Like, the, And you have to really define all of it in, develop, in development and really understand each individual player so that you can give them the best recipe to potentially heighten their own overall ability. Right. When you just take one ability and you say, do this better at the sacrifice of what? And I think that's that's what we've been trying to get at this whole time. And I think it it, it was again, I, I reflect back to things that we've said on past shows where these were things that were inherently understood, known, recognized by people that played the game for a long time. And I think that's why baseball was a boys club for a long time. Right. I would argue that's why baseball remained a very closed circle. I don't think that people from the outside can't come into it, but the implication that it's as simple as like go faster or pull the ball in the air. It's just very, it's very surface level. Like you can tell it's, it's not a, it's not a thought that's been formulated based off of, you know, true understanding of, of like what's happening. So I've, uh, this, this might get a little ranty. So driveline, this is going to be the, the off season of good miss for driveline, which to me is hilarious. Um, it's another golf term like, Oh, it's a good miss, right? You, you, uh, aim for the middle of the green so that when you miss, you're still on the green. That's again, it's just a, it's a, st- it's a statistical approach to all of this. So, the good miss, which there was a big threat about Ronald Acuna, and he hit a slider on the outside corner for a home run to like straightaway right. Hit it at like 103. Acuna can max out at, what, 119? Is that what he did the other day? Acuna is like a one-of-one athlete. He literally he's the first 30-60 athlete ever. He might end up being a 40-60 athlete this year, maybe a 40-70. I don't know. He's doing stuff that like just – He's one of he's a one of one style athlete. He's a superhero. He's a alien, an avatar, blah blah blah. So when you when you say good miss, there's what I hear when I hear good miss is we're implying that every swing is gonna be your A swing. Because every swing needs to have if you're if you're if the approach is maximize your bat speed so you that your misses are good, that means you need to take A swings on really, really tough pitches and be able to make contact with them. And tell me if you agree with this or not, but it's really hard to take your A swing against non A swing pitches. <laughs> like it's really hard yeah, to take an A swing on a slider that's down and away. 
Like, is that, is that really in the bag? Is that something that you can do? Can you take an A swing to the pitch that you're, that's chasing your hands on the inside corner? Is that an A swing situation? So the implication, the the assumption that we're making is, oh yeah, just take your A swing, get your best swing off. It's like, yeah, that'd be awesome. That's a great idea. Like, what are we talking about? This is like a, this is not a drag race. This is not like just pin it and, and, you know, pin the, pin the gas pedal and, and hold on and hope that you go straight. Like it's, it's. Well, there's a reason why you don't hit driver in the rough, right? There's a reason why you don't hit driver from the sand. There's a reason, Bobby. uh, but, But then let's go further. I want to go further. So. You you just made a comment. The reason this whole thing happened is like you said, is it more important to square the ball up or hit the ball hard? So like you're never, as a hitter, you're never practicing not trying to square up the ball. Is that ever, do you ever, I so I actually have a drill that um, I would tell certain players like, hey, first round of BP, I want you to hit a foul tip over and a foul tip under. Usually this is kids that are growing a ton. Like they, they're just, their body awareness is a little, a little aloof. They're just not, if they grow a ton, they got that baby giraffe syndrome. So I'm like, yeah, hit a foul tip on top, hit a foul tip on bottom. Just find the ball, figure out where your aim is today. Cause sometimes you try to hit a foul tip on top, you know, line drive. Sometimes you try to hit a foul tip on the bottom and you miss by a foot. Like it's just, just calibrating your eyes. But in general, like you're never not trying to square up the ball. It's incredibly hard to square up the ball because you're trying to do it. And it's that hard. So it's like, oh yeah, it's a good miss. Yeah, just swing as hard as you can in case you hit it. What? So then we've got the concept of squaring up the ball versus hitting it hard. So you get that tough pitch. You get that pitch that you're you're out front because the pitcher's really good and he threw a good change up and you got to be able to stay on it. That's not your A swing. So do you just sw- sometimes it makes sense to swing through it if if it's a plus count or it's less than two strikes? Yeah, there's times you just want to swing through that ball and that makes sense. But there's times where you need to be able to put that ball in play. And squaring up the ball, giving yourself the best chance to still square up the ball might mean you have to take a non-A swing against that pitch. So item one, we're never trying to miss hit the ball. Item two, we can never take our A swing all the time. You can't do it. Item three is like, yes, we want to square up the ball always, but swinging our hardest isn't the best route to do that. So it's just it, like the oh hashtag good miss. It's like shut up. What are you talking about? <laughs> good miss. Yeah, it's a good miss. So there are if you if you get your A swing off and you do miss hit the ball, yes, you can hit a homer. But how many I would like part of what we're doing with hitting approach, how many A swings are you taking? How many on time, on time swings are you actually taking in the course of the year? It's not a big number. It's just not, it's the, the percentage of a swings is not that high. It's not because hitters don't want to do it. It's just cause it's, it's not easy to do. So if it was easy to do, people would do it, but you watch the best well, hitters I mean, of all time and they're good when they're not good. They're good when they're the, early. They're good when they're late. They're good when they're beat. That's, that's the how you become a good hitter. The that's the whole argument I made in the thread. I was like, are we really to believe that Wade Boggs, Tony Gwynn and Ichiro wouldn't have wanted to hit 35 homers a year if it was that easy, right? It, and it comes down to sacrifice. Like my, my whole, <laughs> and I say this to young hitters all the time, I said, you have to decide what your tolerance 
level is for failure. You have to decide what your risk tolerance is for swing and miss. And, you know, it's funny, you have these conversations and people have a hard time understanding all of it because you're living in a philosophical, existential, non-defined world. Like if I say to, if I say to 30 people, get through the ball, right? 30 people might interpret that differently, right? And, And so much of hitting is about interpretation. And I think that's part of why my vernacular is like, you've taught me to be more defined in when I use terminology, right? Based on the way the world can perceive you and the way the, the the masses might interpret your information. So when you say words, you have one understanding of what something means versus how is the person on the other side receiving it. If I say get through the ball to somebody that like, you know, and not to, this is not specifically about driveline, but most people would be like, well, yeah, that's obvious. The same way somebody might say, well, oh yeah, of course you need to be on time. Right. (laughs) Well, yeah, maybe it's not that obvious to anybody else. So it's what it comes down to is like, you have to define these things on a lot of different levels, right? Like you have to, and and it's, it's why you need to know your audience. It's why you need to know your customer, know the player. What, what, what do they resonate with? What, what makes them tick? What do they see? How do they feel right when it comes down to it? And it's just not that easy. And, and I think, I think, again, the battle, the battle that we fight daily, Bobby, is that there's no way of really understanding or knowing, you know, what level your audience is at in terms of things that seem very simple to you, right? Like I, I had uh, one of my guys last winter say to me, he's like, oh man, he's like, I just realized like, I, I, I just need to see how easy I can swing. Like I just, like a swing that is like very effortless in the cage creates like really loud noises, you know? And I go, yeah, like, didn't you know that? <laughs> like, didn't you know you should swing easier, not harder? And, and he just kind of looked at me funny. Um, again, there are things that you learn over time through experience that are, I think, fairly undefined in hitting. And, you know, one thing I do know for certain is that there's not a lot of hitters that are thinking about max effort, speed, harder, that are having success at a high level. And it's not to say that you never go for it. You never, (laughs) I think as, as a hitter becomes more and more professional, not in terms of you're getting paid to play, but in terms of like, you have a good consistent approach that creates success. Good hitters, professional hitters have plans and they know when they can take chances. So part of a huge part of becoming a better hitter is learning like I'm taking my A swing in this count no matter what because I think I'm going to get this pitch. I was I was texting with, a, I'll say a friend of the program, I'm not going to say his name, but I'm going to say 4786 Kansas as a giveaway. Um, and we were talking about how frequently hitters force contact in situations where they shouldn't force contact. So they'll get like a 2-1 pitch, they get fooled a little bit, and they – they they go out of their way to make contact instead of swinging through it. So you're you're basically getting yourself out because you're not 
staying convicted into what pitch you're trying to hit and you depart from your swing just to, just to make contact. So you're, you have to learn how to not get yourself out in those situations when your whole life, you're just trying to make contact. You're just trying to put the ball in play. Well, and it's, there's it, times when you don't want to. It's the same as like knowing what you're good at, right? Like knowing what zones you're good at, knowing what pitches you're looking for, like having a really, really solid understanding of what you do well and what you don't do well. Like what should you be looking for? When do you need to be looking for it? Like these are the things that, like they they just don't get touched on at all in the amateur space, and and now I've seen it to the point where, you know, it's it's leaking into the professional level where, you know, there are a lot of young hitters who are not very disciplined and don't like all the talent in the world, but they don't really understand any of this. And I don't know if it's because people haven't had the conversations with them or they haven't learned. And then, you know, all of a sudden you try to put some big data set in front of them. And once you do that, it's, you know, it can be mind numbing. So it's having somebody to translate that information to them, um, help them see, like define what really is important for them and so on and so forth. Yeah. We had a a conversation with, uh, we'll just say a top 25 baseball college coach recently. And his comment was, there's the throwing velocity is higher than ever and nobody can throw strikes. And then the, the batting practice is more impressive than anybody than ever before, but nobody can hit in games. Like we're just creating a, we've created a generation of kids who can post numbers and not play the game. And then it going back to the whole bill James thing is like, at what cost are you creating these numbers? At what cost right. are we creating the numbers too soon? And not letting the the players physically develop into their power because that was always the thing, right? You, you, you learn how to hit, and then you grow into your power. Power came last. Now it's no. Let's just maximize the power. Let's maximize our numbers. Push up that ceiling as soon as possible. But then the focus and it, there's just the focus on learning what it means to hit is so diminished right now because statistically it says to pull the ball in the air, and it's like no kidding that production happens on pull the ball in the air. You get, you better hope you get the pitch that you can pull the ball in the air. I'm sure Dragon's yeah. going to clip that and make it like this thing, this rallying cry for them. Yeah, you, like if you get a pitch that you can pull in the air, do damage on it. It's just not going to happen that much. And if you just if you can't pull the ball in the air, that means you're not a good hitter. You haven't learned how to do that yet. So you have good hitters in terms of mindset and in terms of like all those tiny adjustments and paying attention and they can think through in a bat. If that guy can't pull the ball in the air, if he's just not learned how to do it, when you teach him how to pull the ball in the air, he's going to see a big boost in numbers. But if you teach a guy to pull the ball in the air that can't hit, that doesn't have all those think through the at-bats, the little adjustments, if, if they can't do the first part first, they're just going to turn into the, you know, the monkey mind, the, the caveman, pull the ball in the air. And then they, they're going to have to go backwards and learn the hitting part. The question is, is it, is it easier to learn the hit part first and develop the power, or is it easier to develop power and learn the hit part second? Because the one thing I know is pitching doesn't get easier as you move up. Correct. And the mindset and the things that you need to be able to do to survive against good pitching, if you don't have the mental side and you don't have the hitter side, you're in a world of pain. 
it's going to be from a sheer exploration standpoint that and and by the way none of this none of this means that young players shouldn't be trying to swing hard right like they should learn where hard is for them though and then like it has to be controlled hard right it has to be hard can't yeah hard can't be the base if you're if we're building a pyramid hard can't be the base you can't trump you can't trump speed like you, you, that can't trump accuracy right because accuracy ultimately is the thing that allows you to really hit the ball hard and be consistent right so like again squaring the baseball up is so damn difficult that like that has to be your primary focus like by the time you literally get to high school or maybe even, I don't know, uh, like little league. Like, it has to be the focus everywhere. It doesn't even matter, like because at some point you're going to face uncomfortable velocity, and an uncomfortable velocity is going to make you rush and panic. So, like understanding how to create time and, and reverse engineering the swing from square the ball up to everything else is how it I think needs to ultimately be built. Good, good stuff. All right, let's move on. Uh, we kind of just talked about this, but I made a comment. Uh, this was a tweet, and it reads, it's loading, I just want to get it perfect. Uh, when good hitters take a bad swing, they slow down. When bad hitters take a bad swing, they speed up. And I've, I've mentioned this in the past. I don't know if I've ever mentioned it publicly, but I've talked about this, that I've had eight-year-old kids that come into the cage and have a more professional approach than some professional hitters I've worked with, where when they take a bad swing, they step back, they take a deep breath, they readjust their batting gloves, they refocus, and they they go back to what they're trying to do. Um, a lot of players, when they take a bad swing, which most of the time doesn't mean that it was a bad swing, most of the time it means they made bad contact, they think they have to fix it, mm-hmm. and they think they have to hit the next one better, and they think they have to like hit it better than good almost to make up for it. Um, and they're, and they're in a, in a chase to perfection where perfect is some specific outcome that they've predetermined, not the outcome that the pitch has determined. Cause you can't do everything to every pitch. You can't, you can't pull the ball mm-hmm. in the air on every pitch, but some hitters, a lot of hitters, they think that is the ideal outcome. So that's their goal. And if they don't achieve that, then it's bad. That's a really tough way to go about trying to be a better hitter. Unless you're doing some sort of like uh, pitch isolation drill where you're only going to hit balls so that you can pull in the air, which is a good drill. That's that's actually a good drill to do, thing to practice. But uh, yeah, I just, as a as a former player, as a, as a coach, as somebody that's just been around the cage a bunch and just a witnesser of baseball, Good hitters tend to slow things down, which is as much mental as anything else. And bad hitters let the game speed up on them and let things get out of control. Yeah. Well said. I mean, I think the, the hardest part is as like an alpha athlete, achiever, whatever you want to call it, 
your general tendency is to have high expectations, right? Like you just have high expectations yourself, for your team, your teammates, so on and so forth, right? So, and there's this like belief that you can just fix everything in real time. And a lot of times, the characteristics of what cause a less than optimal swing in baseball are. I mean, it could be 1% here, 2% there, 4% there, 10% there, 3% here. And generally what it comes down to is, was it a really good pitch to hit? Were you on time? And were you accurate, right? Some And it's some version of all that. Because regardless of what your mechanics are, there is still a timing window for you to be able to impact the ball. And I think that's the first way, the first time I've ever described it that way. Regardless of how good your swing depth, direction, any of that stuff is, there is a window where you can flush the baseball, right? So for most people, for most hitters, success in training, especially, is rooted in did I flush the baseball? Instead of, was I on time? Did I give myself a chance? Did I take the swing that was required of the pitch that I just faced or the location that I just faced? Did I, did I do all of that within the confines of some set of movements that would allow me to be adjustable, right? And so when, when you rest your laurels on the result of any given play, or any given pitch or any given swing, you're you're doomed because flush, true flush contact, even in, in practice, doesn't happen as much as you'd like it to. It's hard to find. Like, yeah, you can make good contact and hit a line drive, but like you, you can always tell when you don't center cut a ball. And again, round object, round bat, center cutting it is very difficult. So yeah, look, I mean, it's it's hard. And, like, the good hitters are the ones that are, are acknowledging the things that they need to do to give themselves a chance. The bad hitters are the ones that are generally, like, just trying to find flush contact. They don't, they don't have a plan. They don't have an approach. They don't have a thought process as to how they're going to proverbially fix it that doesn't just involve, give me another one, or... Let me fix my back elbow. Does that make sense? Hundred percent. I think it comes down to like, what is the ultimate? I, I keep using the word unaccepting. What is the thing that the hitter is most unaccepting of? What, right. what do they not what, tolerate? Where's your, where's your, what's your tolerance level? Yeah, like what's yeah. your tolerance level for suck? Like what's your, like? Do you, are you okay with hitting? 12 pull side ground balls, punching out six times and hitting a homer and a double and going two for 20, three for 20. Like that's literally, I mean, Joey Gallo, Max Muncy, right? Four for 20, homer, two doubles and a single. What do you got on right? Schwarber? Kyle Schwarber. And what do you guys, what, so Schwarber's an got more homers than singles this year. Which yeah. is wild. That's a crazy, crazy metric. But his his OPS is still really high. He's, I mean, Sam Fold, friend of the program, 
smart. He's a smart guy. He wouldn't, I don't think Sam Fold would let Kyle Schwarber bat leadoff unless he thought it was helping the team win. So how is Schwarber different than sure. a guy like Gallo? Well, <laughs> I think they're different. I mean, it's funny. Like, yeah, without a doubt. Like, I think Schwarber, <laughs> Schwarber has like a deep rooted understanding of how to attack the things that he wants to attack. It doesn't mean he's always going to do well at, at, at impacting those balls because he strikes out quite a bit. But I think it's a much different at bat. Like, if you really look at it, right? Like, Kyle Schwarber's never really had a proverbial bad year, right? When it comes down to production. So, like, can you be consistent in your production while you're sacrificing batting average points to do so? Right? Like, that's that's the bigger question that needs to get answered. Like, you have to be able to be consistent in your production. So, Gallo... According to baseball reference, is a 0.8 war. Schwarber, sorry, Schwarber's a 0.8. Gallo's a 0.5. I need to check fan graphs because um, I need to see defensive numbers because Schwarber plays an atrocious left field. <laughs> he's so bad. He's better at left field than I am because he's in the game, but boy, oh boy, is he not. Is he not slick out there? Um, to me, I think Schwarber. What's it? his OPS is high? Where is it? I'm I'm looking I'm looking I'm looking. Uh, eight something. Yeah. OPS is eight thirty. Pretty good. Uh, Joey Gallo's OPS seven forty one. And they're both like uh, Gallo's a fourteen point five percent walk guy, forty two percent strikeout. Schwarber is. 17.9% walk with a 28% strikeout. So like, oh, there's like a 13% swing on strikeouts. That's a big deal to me. Schwarber's batting average and ball sure. play this year is 202. 202 batting average and ball play. Gallows is 244. So Schwarber's having like more of an unlucky year. But I also see, I see Schwarber as having a plan and knowing, knowing how he needs to approach at bats to be successful. He's on time. He's... He's he has a plan that he's executing where Gallo, I charted a lot of Gallo at bats last year. He is the most susceptible to letting the pitcher dictate his thinking. It's right. it's scary to watch his at bats where it'll be like he'll throw two fastballs in a row and Gallo, you can see his brain go, Oh, gotta speed it up, and then throw an off speed pitch and he's early. Or they'll throw two slow pitches, yep. two off speed pitches, and he's like, Well, oh, gotta slow it down, then they throw a fastball, he's blown away. He just he can't think independent of the pitcher. Like the pitcher conditions him so heavily, it's it's hard to watch when you pay attention to it. Um, it's wild. It's absolutely wild. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's interesting. It's interesting, and they're uh, they're two guys that at face value they might come across the same, but I, I view them as very different hitters for sure. for sure all right do we do we beat that topic to death there i think we did all right last topic i added this on my own uh u.s open women's tennis championship did you watch any of this are you aware of this i did i did 
So uh, Coco Goff won. She beat a Serbian, uh, going to be number one in the world as of one to, as of today. Uh, what's her? I can't. I don't know her last name. She's Cervenka. she's a beast. She's a beast. Yeah, she just she crushed Cervenka. the ball. Was it? Rebecca. Fair. I can find it. Uh, but either way, she's number one in the world, so we should probably know her name. Um, let's find it. Let's find it. Let's find it. Cervenka. Uh, got it. Close enough. We'll, we'll roll with it. So, Sabalenka. She came out. And won the first set. Coco came out and and took care of the final two sets. It's a really entertaining match. Uh, I think tennis is one of the most watchable sports. It's just yeah, Sabalenka, Arena, Arena, Arena. Um, highly Arena. watchable sport. But it was really it was really cool to see where Sabalenka is just pure power. Like just she's coming one speed. She's a power player. She's going to hit it hard. She's going to hit it. She's just going to come at you emotional, aggressive, like just imposing. And Coco is just super quick, wears you down, just gets to gets to so many balls that people don't get to. And it, it seemed like she could just wear down the opponent in that they hit what they think are winners and she gets to them. Then they hit another winner and she gets to it. And they hit another winner and then she gets to it. And it's just like this she ends up forcing mistakes and she ends up like just wearing the opponent down mentally. It was really fun to watch. And they, they commented about how the Sabalenka didn't have any change of pace where Coco could play a more power game. She would switch up speed. She would approach the net. She like just a more diverse. Um, like if you, if you had a video game character and you had a hundred points to give up, Sabalenka was like, probably like 95% power and then 5% emotion. And then Coco is just really spread across the different categories. Really fun to watch. Highly entertaining. Um, really cool moment. There was a video where Coco was like 11 cheering on like Serena Williams winning, I think. And she was just like her, like in the crowd dancing as like an 11 year old. And then eight years later, she's winning the tournament. It's pretty cool. Really pretty, a, a pretty cool moment. Um, it was her first Grand Slam. Highly, highly talented player. Just really cool. I think she's number three in the world now. That's all. I just wanted to acknowledge that. I just wanted to say it was really cool and really fun to watch. And watching the different it kind of kind of blends into the Bill James topic of the different strategies, different different ways to play the game, and different strategies yeah. going to work against different opponents. So she's pretty yeah. awesome. I and cool. I mean, the adjustments she made in the match were pretty incredible too yeah she you know after the first set looked like she was gonna get molly whopped and then yeah. she kept wearing her down it just goes to show you what wearing people down can do because you could tell especially in an emotional player sabalenka is notoriously emotional when she plays and uh, she's had to learn to control that and she even spoke to the fact that she was proud of how she handled herself but you could there were so many times where you could see her emotion on her face. So, well, did you did you see the video that Coco, got leaked? Man, that was awesome. Yeah, Coco. I mean, yeah. crazy composed. Um, just really, just never showed emotion. 
there's a video that was, they say it was leaked. Um, but Sebalenko went in the, in the training room afterwards, like the gym, like the gym they had set up and they show her, it's like a security camera footage and they show her like taking a racket out of her bag and smashing it after the award ceremony. Like she's got her bag on one shoulder and she's holding the, the second place plate thing in the other hand. She puts it down and then grabs a racket, just smashes it on the ground. <laughs> and well, I mean, you I thought it was she, pretty, she, I thought it was pretty horrible that they, that video came to light because sure. she thought she was private. Again. And, but I appreciate like it just shows that the fire is burning. Like there's a, there's an intense, intense fire that's happening there. Imagine what's good. Imagine what she's not showing when she gets all emotional. Right. Well, you can tell in the post match press, in the, 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 the uh, interviews, she was pretty worked up. She just became number one in the world. She lost to a great up and coming player and she wanted to be happy for Coco, but at the same time, she was getting very, very emotional about her own stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, again, it's it, where you put the line of like where the fire burns and where your humility is to say like I lost to somebody that outplayed me today. And I think frustration runs deep with people who, you know, have all the tools in the shit to be able to do the job and then ultimately lose because of unforced errors and mistakes. And, you know, how much of that was caused by Coco and her ability is what you have to really boil it down to. So, yeah. Yep. No, it was, it was, uh, yeah. Tennis is awesome. Love tennis. Love watching it. Agreed. Um, don't Good watch show. it all that often. I think, I think tennis is like different time zones and they, you know, they play Australia, they play France, they play, they play all over. So it's not always the most consumable sport in that regard, but, um, really fun sport to watch. So, all right, that's it. And on that note, pickle out. <laughs> <laughs>